So um, we're nearing our end of this series. It's a massive topic, this series of um, deception and temptation, our true identity. We've, We've called it 40 Days of Clarity. I really feel like I could continue to talk about this topic for a long time. There's so much good material just in this short story about Jesus. Uh, and his temptations, the home groups that have used the curriculum that we write for um, following the sermons have been, in my view, especially uh, transparent, vulnerable, helpful in recent weeks. This has stirred up some really good stuff for us. You know what? It's amazing to me. It is amazing to me that the central figure of Christianity shares his personal temptations with his followers and with all of us through the Gospels. Isn't that incredible? Talk about a transparent, authentic, not trying to make it look more shiny than it is kind of reality. I think that's powerful. And so we want to like soak this up. Like, tell me more, Jesus. Help me to learn from this experience that you've been through. So here's a super fast summary of the first two temptations of Jesus. We'll focus on the third today. In the first temptation in Matthew's account, Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. This is an appeal to Jesus' appetites and to Jesus' creative abilities. He's tempting Jesus, essentially saying, so you're hungry, right? And you can do this, right? If you are the son of God. And then Jesus resists the temptation by saying, by quoting from the word of God, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, um, where he says, man does not, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the first temptation. Second temptation, Satan takes Jesus, is the verb, takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes scripture to tempt Jesus. Satan is still attacking Jesus' identity, But in the second temptation, he changes his method. He uses holy scripture to tempt Christ. Satan tempts Jesus to prove his identity through some dramatic act of power. So the first temptation is prove your identity through like turning one thing into another. Um, Meet your own needs. The second temptation is to demonstrate the reality of who you are, Jesus, through some dramatic act of power. And in the process, this is even more complicated than the initial appearance because essentially Satan is challenging Jesus' confidence in his dad, in his father. He's he's, his, His confidence in the father's ability and willingness to care for him is what's being assaulted here. It's very loaded. So if we put it kind of in casual language, we might say that Satan is saying to Jesus, your father will take care of you, right? Like he he can take care of you, right? And he will if you really are his son. So why don't you prove it? That's how it goes. So why don't you prove it? And Jesus resists the second temptation by saying, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is like, I don't have to prove this to you. I don't have to prove this to you, which is a great response whenever Satan's talking to you. I don't have to prove anything to you, right? So today we're going to look at the third and final temptation of Christ as recorded in Matthew. But before we get to that question, I have another question. In fact, I had three questions I wanted to ask this morning. And then I realized yesterday, this is like an hour and five minute sermon. This is really, really long. And you folks have been so encouraging to me, but I don't think you'd really want to sit here for that long and hear me talk, especially today because my voice is shot. So I'm going to cut the last third of the sermon out. We'll try to fit it in on Palm Sunday if that'll work. So if you're a note taker and you really are one of those people that are like, so what did you say right here? That's going to be hard for you today because I'm not going to 
going to finish, okay? Uh, I'm going to try to wrap it up in about halfway through. All right. First question I want to ask is, where does temptation happen and how do we deal with that? And then we'll go to the, uh, what was the third temptation of Jesus and how did Jesus resist that? So we'll do the where question and the what question. A whole lot of good ancient stuff thrown in there, right? All right, so first question, where does temptation take place? Where does temptation take place? Answer, in the mind. In the mind. Even if the initial source of temptation is a physical person, is an actual donut, is a $50 bill that slips from the pocket, unseen, some passerby, even if there's that initial physical catalyst, the temptation then takes place up in the mind. It happens in the mind. That's where the battle rages. So there's the initial catalyst, like a radio ad for a drink, or a billboard for a burger, right? Or a really attractive person walks by, or maybe something as direct as an invitation. Hey, you want to try this? And then after that, the battle begins to rage. Where? In your mind. What should I do? What do I think? Is that true? What will happen? Should I? Shouldn't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? I'm so tempted. I'm so tempted. Where is it happening? It's happening in your mind. Now, it's really interesting to me. There's sources of commentary on this passage, the story of Jesus' temptations. Both ancient and modern that point out that it is very unlikely that Satan appeared to Jesus in physical form. It is even less likely that Satan physically took Jesus to stand on the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, which was 35 miles away from the place in the desert where he was tempted. And that it is virtually impossible, if you're thinking literally, that, as we're going to read in the third temptation, that Satan takes Jesus to the top of some mountain from which he can see all of the cities and the kingdoms of the world. Of course, you know, movies and plays and historic art in this scene, they will depict Satan as having some shape. They'll give him some character. He'll have some bodily and physical presence. You've got to give him something, right, in order to tell the story. And of course, art about this story often shows Jesus actually standing on the top of the temple or actually on some mountain uh, and seeing these kingdoms of the world. But I think that we should imagine these temptations happening primarily in Jesus' mind. More like a vision or a battle of the thoughts or a dream, or a fantasy. And this is not to say that the devil isn't real, and this is not to say that he wasn't directly involved, and this is not to say that the temptations weren't real. No, it's, I'm saying the very opposite of that. I'm saying they were completely real. This is why Jesus gathers his disciples around him at this campfire and says, let me tell you what happened to me. Um, he was tempted by the devil, He's very clear on that, and he was really tempted. It was tempting. This was a real battle, not some fairy tale show that didn't actually matter. So I'm not going to make an, I don't want to argue about whether or not Satan was like literally took Jesus to stand on the roof of the temple or literally found some mountain. 
because that misses the point. My goal is to push us towards clarity, and I simply want to help us recognize, invite you to recognize that the true nature of temptation is not some overly caricatured, simplified idea of how this actually happens. I think that if we oversimplify temptation, we don't help anybody. We, we just make sort of a game out of it, a childish thing out of temptation. If, as John Chrysostom writes, he's a fourth century Christian pastor, that Jesus' temptations are for our instruction, well, then we need to realize where and how these temptations actually took place. I'm simply inviting us to recognize that temptation primarily happens up here. It happens up here. This is where the battle rages. On one level, yes, it's important to recognize that temptation happens in an office or at the gym or while traveling for work or temptation happens online. But it's even more important, I think, to recognize that temptation happens in your head, in your mind, in your thoughts, right up here. We might even say in your spirit. So why is that important to, to recognize? It's important because if you see temptation as primarily physical, then the solution is easy. Get rid of the physical, right? Don't go to the office or change offices or get a subscription at a different gym or don't have alcohol or ice cream or whatever your go-to is in your home. Stop traveling for work. Buy a flip phone, right? Just remove the physical. But that actually won't solve the problem, and you and I both know that it won't solve the problem, and it won't solve the problem for two reasons. One, you can remove some physical triggers, you can remove some physical sources of temptation, and you absolutely should, but you will never be able to remove all of them, right? Because you live on earth. So you'll never be able to remove all of the physical uh, sources or triggers. And the second reason that seeing temptation as primarily physical is not totally helpful is because you and I both know that the real problem is not happening at work. The real problem is not happening at the office. It's not happening at the gym. It's not happening on the cell, po- the cell phone because the real problem isn't physical. The real problem's up here. The real problem is the temptation that's raging in our thoughts. That's where truth is being twisted. That's where the the false narrative is being replayed over and over and over and starting to shape your behaviors. That's where temptation's happening. It's the battle in the mind. One of the places that Jesus talks about this is in the very next chapter of Matthew, chapter 5, where he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is saying the battle is won or lost in the will And we moderns think of the will as a function of the mind. Ancients, like Jesus, think of the will as seated in the soul or seated in the heart. But wherever you feel it's located or whatever you call it, heart, soul, mind, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the battle is actually won or lost in the mind. Where your desire and your will go toe-to-toe. Whatever you call that, wherever that is for you. The place where what you want to do and what you choose to do gets worked out. That's where the battle is. The place where what you want to do or are tempted to do and what you choose to do gets worked out. Seeing temptation as a battle of the mind, it doesn't make it any less serious. It points actually to the epicenter of the issue. It takes us right to the core where the struggle is actually happening. 
And this is why it's important for us to imagine Jesus's temptations as accurately as we possibly can. And that's why it's worth asking this question, where does temptation take place? Recognizing temptation and deception in the battle for our true identity as a largely cognitive thing or mental thing related to thinking and believing, it puts the focus where the focus should be, friends, not out there, in here. That's where the focus should be because this is where the battle needs to be won. Are there some outside stimuli? Absolutely. We see something, we hear something, we're offered something, but then the battle moves up here and it rages up here and the battle takes place where no one else can see it. That's why it's just so insidious. And that's why you have to develop this skill, this ability, this basic level of recognition and response. Because if I see you responding physically in a way that is destructive, I can help you but I can't see what's happening in here and you can't see what's happening in my head. So it can go unrecognized and it can be like the priority on our mind can be so undervalued that we we grow up and we never even have a sense of like this ability or this skill set to do battle where battle actually happens. All right, let me offer you four clarifying statements. I have found these so helpful. First, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And he writes in James 1, the end of the Bible, he's got a little letter and he says this. He's, he's going to give us like a theology of how temptation affects us in our behavior. He says this, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Okay, we're still talking about temptation. Then, after Desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James is sketching out this whole process. Starts with a stimulus, moves to a desire, then a temptation, then a choice is made, and then an action follows, and then there's a consequence. Or to use James's words, this is the process of desire to death, how desire can lead to death. Now, why is that clarifying at all? It's clarifying because of this. James is essentially saying the battle starts in the mind, and it can end there. It can end there. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you are caught into some current from which you have no escape, and it's just like it's inevitable. You're just going to sin again. You're going to cause more destruction. No, temptation begins in the mind, and it can end there. You can end it right there before it even becomes a sin. Here's a second thing that I think is really clarifying. This is St. Jerome. Mentioned him last week. He's the first guy to translate the Greek into Latin, the, the New Testament. He says, referring to Satan's second temptation of Jesus, where he says, throw yourself down. He says, the devil cannot push you. He can only persuade you. That's been very helpful to me the last few weeks. The devil cannot push you. He can only persuade you. Jerome's theme in this sermon is Satan is so limited. He's so limited. When I was in fifth grade, my little sister was in third grade, we'd walk home from the school bus, bus stop, with a very big and very insecure eighth grader. (laughs) And uh, he would bully us the whole way. He would say mean things to us. He would insult us. He would teach us all these terrible words. He He would be rude. He would be pushy, intimidating. And then one day it turned physical. One day it turned physical. 
Because that's what bullies can do. Bullies are bigger than you. They can push you around. They can hurt you. But friends, Satan is a liar. He's a liar. He's a fraud. He, can, he can't push you. He can only try to persuade you. He's so limited. He's so limited. As a theologian from the early uh, stages of the Christian faith, second century, the guy's name is Origen, reflecting on the story of Jesus' temptations, he writes this. I think this is clarifying. He says, the devil's words are irrational and untrue. The devil's words are irrational and untrue. In other words, if sin sounds like a good idea to you, if you think your life's actually going to get better in that direction, you are being deceived right now, right? Sin is irrational and it is untrue. You are buying into a line of thinking that is, by definition, irrational. Those are the devil's words. They don't make sense. They will not provide what he's promising. They are untrue. You should reject them. The devil's words are irrational and untrue. If you feel tempted into something and you start trying to make sense of it, like, huh, maybe that could work out. Like, whoa, no. No, you're, you're playing according to a set of rules that are fundamentally skewed. Don't even go there. Fourth, Gregory the Great, rich guy, fifth century, sells everything he has, becomes a Benedictine monk, and then in 590, he's elected Pope of the Roman Church. He writes this, the devil subjugated Adam through consent. That's good. The devil subjugated Adam through consent. In other words, the devil was able to control and overpower and bring Adam to his knees because Adam essentially gave him permission to do so. Not explicitly, because that's not the way it works. You typically don't say, force of evil and destruction, come on into my life and destroy everything that matters to me. You don't say that, but essentially that's what we do when we give in to temptation when we buy the lie, when we go in that direction, because Satan can't push you. He can only try to persuade you. The way he subjugates Adam is because Adam gives him permission. He gives him consent. The devil will use our own consent and can only affect us when we give, so, when we give him consent. So to recap those four clarifying statements, temptation does not have to lead to sin. Temptation starts in the mind. You can end it there. Secondly, Jerome, the devil cannot push. He can only persuade. Origen, realize that Satan's words are irrational and untrue. Don't believe those lies. And Gregory, Satan can't make you do anything. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You chose. You gave consent. So reject the deal next time it's offered. Don't say yes to that anymore. Don't trade your feathers in for worms. All right. I hope that was helpful. Um, let's look at the third temptation of Jesus. That was the first question. Where does temptation happen? Second and final question, what was the third temptation of Jesus? Here's how Matthew writes it. Verse 8, chapter 4. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said if you will bow down and worship me. Can you even believe that? And then Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's, again, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. 
So here's the final temptation in Matthew's account. Notice this. There's no justification on Satan's part this time. No, if you are the son of God. He's abandoned that strategy. There's no twisting of scripture in the third temptation. That didn't work. Jesus' theology is way better than Satan's. He trounced him last time. He ditches that method. There's no challenge of Jesus' ability or of Jesus' relationship with the Father. Just straight up, what feels to me like desperate, irrational appeal to greed. It's, it's the last-ditch effort. It's an appeal to greed in Jesus. Almost like a bribe. Like when you get pulled over, theoretically, and your, 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 your license is out of date, right? And yes, you were speeding, and yes, I'm sorry, my, uh, my, my ID is no longer valid, but, you know, I got a couple of $100 bills here, and why don't we just pretend this didn't happen? I mean, it's like, it's like that desperate. Like when you start bribing, because that's the last shot you've got. This temptation um, of Christ, it almost feels silly to me. Like, why would Jesus fall for this? But then I remember how it feels, like at the end of a workout where I am exhausted, I feel sick, and somebody says, hey, you, you want to just be done now, and here's some water? It's, it's not what I want, but in the moment, I want it. In the moment, I want it. Or imagine you plan this big trip with your family, and you've got all these great things scheduled and planned, and you've saved money, and you've made the arrangements, and then at 3.30 in the morning, your alarm goes off so that you can catch your international flight. And you actually, in the moment, are willing to put the whole thing at risk by hitting snooze, right? It's like, it's not what you want, but in the moment, you want it. Because you're not thinking clearly, and you're exhausted, and it's the end of the 40 days of temptation. So, in one sense, it feels like, how would Jesus ever even possibly like, be tempted by that? But he said, I was tempted by this. Because he is exhausted, right? And somehow, this taps into something that was legitimate at some level. Satan's last play to confuse Jesus' identity or his, and to derail his mission is the promise to give him all the kingdoms of the earth and the, the splendor therein. He says, you can have it all, Jesus. You can have it all. Just worship me. That's all I need. Just worship me, and you can have it all. It's completely irrational, but it doesn't mean it's not tempting. So don't get cocky. Nate, right? It's completely irrational, but it doesn't mean it's not tempting. So how does Jesus respond? He does two things. First, he forcefully renounces Satan. Get away from me, he says. And then he declares ultimate truth. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What I appreciate most about Jesus' response is the clarity of his response, right? Get away from me. I serve my father. It's just crystal clear. There's no consideration of, G of Satan's deal. Jesus doesn't pause and go, man, that doesn't even seem to make sense. How would that work? Can you kind of spell that out? For he doesn't do that. He doesn't play the game. He doesn't buy into the terms. It's just out of hand, like, no, get away from me. Uh, Sandy was helping me with this, with this sermon on Thursday, and, and she said, when temptation presents itself, don't invite it in for a latte, like, that would just be the, that's the wrong kind of, let me think about that a little. Let me consider, why don't we sit down together? No, there's no hesitation in Jesus here. There's no, well, maybe a little wouldn't hurt, or yeah, maybe I'll just have one. It's away from me, away from me. St. Benedict, 6th century monk, he says, while temptation is still young, cast it far from your heart. Another place he says, dash it against a rock. While it's still young, isn't that insightful? 
before temptation matures, before it gets sophisticated, before it gets its fingers into other relationships, before it becomes so powerful that you, you, your, your chances are slim, while it's still young, when it starts in the mind, end it in the mind. Cast it as far away from your heart as you possibly can. Don't invite it in for a latte. Right? As soon as it enters your mind, get it away, 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 away. The series in a sentence is this, away. <laughs> get out of here. Jesus says, get away from me. He's like, this conversation is over. And then the exclamation point at the end of his 40 days of temptation is this statement of ultimate allegiance. And I think that's really important. Write that down. Jesus responds to temptation by speaking a statement of ultimate allegiance. What is it? It is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. It's resolute. It's 100%. There's no compromise. Jesus declares ultimate truth. He's almost preaching at this point. You don't even get the sense that Jesus is in defense mode. He's like bringing it already. Like, yeah, there is one God. We serve one God. I'm serving one God. Now, one of the organizations here in Lincoln that, are, that we together, we support, um, is this place called Mercy Multiplied. It's a residential program for young women uh, who are in all sorts of different kinds of trouble. And some of the trouble that they're in, not all of it, some of them have been offended for sure. Some of the trouble that they're in is because they have believed things about themselves that are not true. They have believed lies about themselves that have led to destructive, limiting, um, uh, tragic kinds of behaviors and, and results. Um, and so uh, part of the curriculum that is used in Mercy Multiplied in their recovery seeks to address the lies and the temptations that are uh, by, by battling them with truth. In other words, some of these things have been spoken maybe once or twice about them, and that's not why they've become destructive. The reason that these lies have become destructive is because they've allowed them to live. They've invited them in for a latte, and why don't you just move on in while you're at it? And they've believed these things, and they've played them over and over and over and over in their heads for years. And, and they've, they've shaped their lives now. Lies like this. You don't really matter. Lies, lies like, uh, you are unlovable. Nobody wants you around. Somebody told me that they're in a meeting where one parent had already left the kid, and the kid got in trouble. And then the second parent comes into the meeting and in front of the authority from the school said, now neither one of us want you. And then that gets played over and over and over again. Or maybe the lie is, you don't have what it takes. Maybe somebody has said something like this at some point. The reason these lies become so destructive and debilitating is because they're played over and over. They're played on repeat. <clears throat> when life gets hard, when you're tired, when you're stressed, when things don't work out at home or at work, this is the lie that pops into your head. These are the temptations that we're, uh, these are the lies that we're tempted to believe are true. Can any of you relate to stuff like that? Is there something that you hear in your mind over and over again? I can't read your mind. Part of what makes it so challenging is nobody can see up here. But if I could read that lie in your mind, and if you could read 
the lies that tempt me? What, what would yours say? What would I read happening inside your head? What's the lie? If you know it, write it down. Uh, write it down. This is just for you. It could be helpful. The ancient church calls this confession. Confess this. This is what I hear. This is, the, this is what I start to think is true. And so then the journey toward restoration for these young women at mercy begins with them identifying these words, these lies, these things they're tempted to believe, and then they write down a truth from Scripture that counters these very untruthful statements, that counter the lie. And this is essentially what we see Jesus doing in this third temptation, right? Satan says, all of this can be yours, all of this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want, we'll call it good, nobody's going to get hurt. And Jesus responds by saying, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this is Jesus quoting scripture to counter the lie of Satan. So I wonder, are you aware of a scripture that would counter that lie that runs through your head? Are you aware of a scripture that, that addresses that, that you could, that speaks directly to that? You should write it down. And if you're not aware of one, you should, that's your next step. Talk to somebody today. Confess to them, this is, in my, in my dark moments, this is what I hear. And give somebody else an opportunity to help you discover some truth from Scripture that actually addresses that lie. Like Melissa was saying, we can't just stop thinking about the, the lie. We have to replace the falsehood with a truthful statement. And here's what I think is so powerful about what happens um, over at Mercy. They teach the girls to do these three things. Summarize... Um, the, the truth statement, summarize the scripture, and then personalize it, add a, add a pronoun like me or I to the scripture, and then vocalize it. Like turn it into a mantra, turn it into a slogan, turn it into a response. Bring that battle out into real full life in a sense and, and engage aggressively this series of lies that are, that are um, threatening to take you down. Speak it. Declare the truth. So this could be really helpful. Uh, I wish we could all do this personally. Um, let me just show you an example with what Jesus says as, as an example. So if we take Jesus' response to the lie of Satan, Jesus' response is, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, that's pretty short, but we might summarize that by saying that's essentially a command for wholehearted devotion. That's my, best, that's my best shot at summarizing that. That's a command for wholehearted devotion. I could personalize it by saying, I choose wholehearted devotion. That's how I personalize that. I choose wholehearted devotion. And then I could make that a mantra. I could make that a slogan, right? So when I get a critical phone call and I feel like I'm terrible at what I do, I could say, I choose wholehearted devotion doesn't even really address that. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It, it lines me up, right? It lines up my heart. Uh, when I'm tempted to, to look at something that I know is destructive and harmful, I choose wholehearted devotion. It becomes a mantra. Um, when, when, I'm, when I'm tempted to like aggressively respond to somebody in judgment, I choose wholehearted devotion. This can be a really practical and really helpful spiritual discipline. Take the lies that are offered, the shortcuts that are offered, the temptations like, all of this can be yours. You can be happy. Have whatever you want. Just give me what I want, says the devil. And you can respond to that by saying, no. It's whole heart. For me, it's wholehearted devotion. 
That's my mantra, right? Now, I just end by saying this. Paul and other writers of the, of the Bible, they are convinced that real transformation is possible. They are convinced that real life change is possible. And one of the ways real transformation takes place, according to Paul, is by the renewing of the mind. By the renewing of the mind. Believe, by believing what is true and using those truths to reject what is false. This, friends, is how we resist temptation. This is how we win the battle in our minds. And so may God give us the grace and the power to do this so that we're not walking around like a lot of people in our culture. Everything looks great. Look how shiny and effective and polished my life is. I got it all together. And inside, I'm a, I'm a wreck because I'm believing all kinds of lies about myself. We don't need to live like that, right? We can embrace the truth that is better than the lie. We can have this integrated life where we're free inside and so we can live free. We don't have to put on this appearance that everything's okay. We will unless we deal with this. And so with great hope in the power of God, the power of God specifically to renew our minds, may we embrace the truth in the face of temptation, reject the false, and hold on to the truth. Um, in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. God, please give this community great grace to be free and to live in Jesus' name.